G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. Today's sermon is entitled, Slow Down and Sing Out, and it focuses on a number of passages, mainly Exodus 17 and Psalm 95. We hope you enjoy the sermon. The first reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. This may be found on page 84 of the Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 17, 1 to 7. The whole whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Raphidon, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the Israelites, Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our psalm for today is Psalm 95, and we'll say the verses alternately. O come, let us sing out to the Lord. Let us shout in triumph to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his face with thanksgiving, and cry out to him joyfully in psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, and he made it. His hands moulded the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down, and kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is the Lord our God, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on the day of When your forebears tested me, put me to proof, though they had seen my works. Forty years long I have owed that generation and said, it is the people who heard in their hearts, for they do not know my ways. Of whom I swore in my wrath, they sh- 
Would you please pray for me as I pray for you as we open up God's word together. Loving Lord God, we thank and praise you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and it opens up true worship. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday at uh, Ignite Youth Group, I asked the teenagers, who do you trust? They came up with some awesome answers. One girl said she trusted her boyfriend because he can keep a secret. Another guy said he trusted his best mate because he's always there. One girl said she trusted her sister. We went around singing the praises of the people we trust until at last we came to my three-year-old son, Jude. Who do you trust, Jude? Quick as a flash, Jude says, Nobody. (laughs) I tell you this story not to embarrass my son, but because it hits at the core of what we're talking about today. Psalm 95 reminds us to sing God's praises, but there is a surprising twist at the end. Things go from, come let us sing to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, to I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The psalm goes from happy to solemn in the space of just 10 verses, and then finishes. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to page 703, Pew Bibles to 703, because we're going to be focusing and concentrating on Psalm 95. The psalm seems so disjointed that people have actually taught that Psalm 95 is two older songs smushed artificially together. There's no historical evidence of this, though, and so I think we really should take it as a whole and have a really good think about why these pieces fit together as we think about worship today. Page 703, 703 in those church Bibles. Well, let's go to that first reading that Colin read, Miserable Meribah. You don't need to flick there in your Bibles, it's okay, just 703. In the book of Exodus, a book we'll be focusing on later that year, we hear about how God rescued a nation of slaves from the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, Egypt. God calls Moses, a man raised by Egyptian royalty, to betray his adopted family and set his captive people free, free to worship God in the promised land. God achieves this through a series of 10 miracles, or 10 plagues, slowly undermining the defenses of the Egyptians. God miraculously forces the Egyptian pharaoh to soften his heart and let God's people go. God then parts the Red Sea and saves the people from the pursuing Egyptian soldiers. The people stroll onward to the promised land. And as they march, they sing God's praises, much like we see in Psalm 95. That's a picture of Miriam, Moses' sister, praising God. 
There's a cloud that leads the people by day and a pillar of fire that leads them by night. They don't get sick, their shoes don't wear out, and their homeland, their new home, is only 800 kilometres away, a journey that should only have taken 40 days max. But instead it took 40 years. Why? Because the people hardened their hearts to the God who had just set them free. Remember in Exodus 15, the people march into the promised land singing God's praises. But then they get thirsty and so they whinge. So God miraculously gives them sweet water to drink. Then in Exodus 16, the people get hungry and they whinge. So God gives them bread from heaven. Then they want meat, so God gives them quail. Finally, in Exodus 17, the people are thirsty again. Surprise, surprise. So they quarrel and they question God's ability to provide for them. Now, if you've been playing along at home, you'll realize that God has just achieved at least 14 or 15 different miracles, global miracles, in the sight of these people. He's already produced miraculous water in the wilderness. And then only a few days later, the people get thirsty. And they believe that the God who couldn't liberate them from Egypt can't give them a glass of water. You'd think God would be ready to give up on these people. But instead, he tells Moses to whack a rock with a stick. And out grushes fresh drinking water. But as a reminder, these springs are called Meribah, which means quarreling, and Massa, which means testing. And Meribah and Massa, praises to God, are silenced by hard hearts. This is why I think we have this jarring psalm. Miserable Meribah is a reminder of how often and how quickly our worship gets derailed by hard hearts. And this is why hard-heartedness is so toxic. It keeps us from the wonder of worship and locks us out of God's rest. More about God's rest in a moment, but first let's have a think about the wonder of worship. Worship is the right response to who God is. At the same time, it's good for us. Worship comes from the old English word, worthship. You worship the most important thing, the most worthy thing in your life. If you worship the Brisbane Broncos, and I imagine there are a couple of people jumping on that bandwagon already, you buy all their gear, you go to all their games, you live and breathe football. When they're up, you're up. And when they're down, you're down. We're all worshippers. Some people say, well, I'm not very religious. But if you look at where someone invests their time, their money, and their energy, you'll be able to figure out pretty quick what they worship. God made us for worship. And ultimately, only God is truly worthy of our worship. Worship, though, isn't just singing at church. 
It's a whole life commitment that involves your emotions, your mind, and your actions. And we see this in Psalm 95. Look with me at verse 2. It says, Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Sometimes as Anglicans, we treat people who wear their faith on their sleeve with suspicion. People who sing too loud in church, who raise their hands in worship, who get a little bit too excited are seen as overbearing or maybe embarrassing. This stoicism, however, is part of a bygone era. An era when showing emotion was seen as weak. It's a cultural thing. It's not a Christian thing. Psalm 95 doesn't feel this way about worship. God's given us his all, so why shouldn't we give our all back to him? This doesn't mean that we have to act a certain way, but it does call us to open our hearts to God. This matters because when we close our hearts to God, our worship becomes bland. Our day-to-day lives become tired. Reading the Bible becomes a chore. Prayer becomes an inconvenience. And service of others becomes an obligation. If you've never opened your heart to God, Psalm 95 gives you permission to do that today. Another thing it gives us permission to do is open our minds to God. Verses 4 and 5 remind us why God is worthy of our worship with our minds. Look at verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. All creation was made by God and belongs to God. When Psalm 95 was written, there were gods all over the place. Gods of the trees, gods of the mountains, gods of the valleys, whatever. It's interesting that um, many thought that there weren't any gods of the seas, and the seas were greater than the gods and actually existed before them. But here, the psalm engages us intellectually. The statement is, earth, mountains, seas, dry land, all creation is made by God for God. So why worship creation when you can connect with the creator? Here we're reminded not to check our brains at the door when it comes to worship. We can peer into art, history, science, any field of discovery, and God will still be there. We often separate feeling and thinking, as if people can't do both at the same time. God says, you can. And when we worship the God who gave us emotions and brains to use at the same time, all of a sudden our heads and our hearts align and we discover the true peace found in God. The third aspect of worship that Psalm 95 encourages us to engage is our actions. Verse 6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. 
What's going on here is what's inside our hearts is externalized. We're called to kneel before the Lord our Maker. Our actions matter to God. Sometimes it's tempting to believe that if we think the right way and feel God in our hearts, our actions don't matter. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus loathed those who separated their doctrine from their doings. He called people who do that whitewashed tombs, good-looking on the outside, but dead inside. We worship God through our actions. It's good to bow, to kneel, to dance in church. Not to impress people around us or to make a scene, but to bring our whole self in alignment with God. It's also good to kneel and pray at home, to put on worship music and dance around the house. And by extension, our work is worship too. If you work behind a computer, commit that work to God. If you serve meals on wheels, Pray for every door you knock on. If you're cleaning the house, do it for the Lord and make it an act of worship. Eric Little uh, was a Scottish runner who famously pulled out of his pet event at the 1924 Olympics because he refused to run on Sunday. He was demonized for letting Britain down But then he went on to win the 400 metres, not his pet event, and became a national hero. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you might know the famous line, which has Liddell saying, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What you might find surprising is that there's no record of Liddell ever having said that. Instead, what he repeatedly said was, God made me for China. Liddell's story didn't end at the Olympics. Afterwards, he travelled to occupied China, where he died during World War II. He served God diligently as a missionary. Liddell worshipped God his whole life through, with his emotions, his mind, and his actions. We're not all called to be missionaries in China, but God still calls us into the wonder of worship today. And this again is why hard-heartedness is so dangerous. And it's why Psalm 95 ends with this stern warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested me and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. And they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's important to go back to miserable Meribah as we finish because this is where the Spirit takes us. 
At the beginning of this series, I spoke about how sermons on Psalms are tricky because explaining poetry often robs them of their emotion and wonder. There is, however, a sermon about Psalm 95 in the Bible. In the book of Hebrews, a book written after Jesus' resurrection, the preacher looks at Psalm 95 and quotes enormous chunks of them. And his purpose is to heal hard-heartedness. Hebrews 3.6 says, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. He's quoting Psalm 95. The preacher goes on to quote the rest of the psalm to illustrate not just how hard-heartedness kills worship, but also how the Holy Spirit shows us what to look forward to in life. Rest. You see, hard-heartedness meant that the Hebrew people wandered the desert for 40 years. They were too afraid to trust God and let him lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Only when that hard-hearted generation died out could they enter the promised land. Surprising though, and here's the twist, the people still didn't find rest in the land. When they got into the promised land, they hardened their hearts. And they rebelled against God again, even when they had it so good. Friends, this is why grumbling is such an issue. Even millionaires and movie stars grumble. No matter how good we have it, our sin nature leads us to harden our hearts. It's like a parent cooking a delicious, fresh healthy dinner for their child. I don't need to imagine this because my wife does this all the time. (laughs) And they present it to their child to enjoy. And without even trying it, the child says, yuck, I hate this. Make me a sandwich. So often we treat God in a similar way. Spiritually hardening our hearts to the gifts that he gives us. So what are we to do? How do we heal hard-heartedness? The answer in Hebrews is to sing God's praises. Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now, that rest that Hebrews is talking about is the rest we will find when Jesus returns. The people of Israel were meant to find rest in the promised land, but their hard-heartedness and their grumbling cut that off. The author of Hebrews tells us that that promised rest, though, is still available to us today through the saving death of Jesus Christ. 
our hard hearts are softened by the gospel. And when we repent and believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters our hearts. And that, friends, is why we sing on Sunday. Through this Christ righteousness, we can sing God's praises with reckless abandon, knowing our future rest is secure in him. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every Sunday, every Sunday morning when you come to church, you are approaching the throne room of grace. And that worship service, Sunday isn't the last day of the week, it's the first day of the week. It's meant to kickstart your week so that you can go out singing God's praises and worship God with your whole self seven days a week. One day Christ is coming again to set all wrongs right and to gather all who follow him into his rest. One day, hard hearts won't get in the way of our praise. Instead, we'll see Jesus face to face, and we will sing God's praises into eternity. So friends, slow down and sing out. Sing God's praises loud and proud in church, but then go out and sing the Lord's song wherever you go this week. Boldly approach God's throne room of grace in your heart and live life as a song of praise to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.